Good morning. That was really lame. Good morning. It is awesome to have you with us and awesome to have you at our Sandy and Vancouver campuses and those watching online. Most excellent for you to be here and I so appreciate Dave and just, I know he's got my back singing happy birthday to an introvert. That's just, what I was, I was hoping for that. We're wrapping up our series called God Never Said That and where we're taking a look at some religious myths in our culture that are popular Several years ago, my wife and I led a short-term missions team to Alaska, and when we got back, it was in the summertime, and the first morning, I went to take the, it was, warm, it was really hot, and so I went to take the thermal blanket off the pool, and I immediately discovered that since, when we were gone, a possum gotten into our pool and drowned and was at the bottom. So I knew enough, I was like, well, this is going to be a two-person job. My oldest daughter, Lindsay, who is a studette, I asked her to help me out, I said, would you like to scoop or hold the trash bag? And she chose scoop. So I got big, the pool skimmer out. It's holding this big heavy-duty trash bag. And so she got the possum at the bottom of the pool and was bringing it up. And when it hit the surface of the water, it just fell apart. And I thought to myself, this is going to be bad. And it was way worse than what I could have thought. I have what doctors call an active gag reflex. I could not stop gagging for anything. It smelled so nasty. And, uh, you, know, and you know, my poor wife, she's, she's wondering what all the commotion is because Lindsay is screaming, I'm gagging. <laughs> so finally she pours the possum into the trash bag, but in the process, the head got disconnected from the body, <laughs> floated back down to the bottom. And I was, you know, by this time I, you know, I have to do something different. I cannot keep gagging like this. My only, you know, the only consolation was this first thing in the morning, so my stomach was empty. But I said, I, I, I remember seeing this on TVs in the movie. So I went inside and got some Vicks VapoRub and I put it underneath my nose. And it worked like immediately. I could no longer smell that gnarly stench. And so I was able to go back and deal with the head and put it back, in, put it in the trash bag. But now I've got another problem because it's Monday morning and garbage doesn't come until Thursday. And it's going to be like 100 plus, 107 degrees for the rest of the week. So I thought, I, this is a genius idea. I know what I'll do. I double bagged it and I put it in the freezer. <laughs> it's like, that's what I do with salmon carcasses. And so when my wife, Sean, asked, well, what do you do with the possum? I told her I put it in the freezer. She's going, no! I can only say, thank the Lord for Arm & Hammer baking soda. That's, that's my only salvation. And, you know, so after the garbage came and took it away, and I totally drained the pool and, you know, just scrubbed it and, you know, got all the, you know, there are little possum bones everywhere and stuff, but, you know, sanitized it. But you know why that thing smelled so terrible? That is the smell of death. And the Bible equates sin with death. That is what sin smells like to God. But thank the Lord, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, God has his own version of Vicks VapoRub. And that doesn't, and it, so our sin doesn't smell like that to God anymore. But I want to talk about a word that's politically incorrect to talk about today. It's that dirty little three-letter word called sin. And Last, you know, we've been talking about God never said that. We've been looking at these myths. But last week, we dealt with a, a myth. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. But because beliefs drive actions, we're going to today talk about a related concept, which is it doesn't matter what you do as long as you don't hurt anyone. 
And that sounds pretty good. It sounds like that could even be bumper sticker material. But the problem is, at the end of the day, that, that view really doesn't take into consideration the seriousness of sin. It minimizes or denies sin. See, there are some things I think we would all agree should be avoided if they're going to hurt people. For example, it's no problem with swinging a baseball bat around unless you're in a room full of people, right? Then it would be wrong. If you do a quick search on the Internet using the phrase, hurt anyone else, a blog by a motorcycle rider comes out that says it's nobody else's business whether he wears a helmet because it doesn't hurt anyone else. And see, this line of reasoning is used to justify and defend all sorts of topics that are in, popular in our culture now, hot-button topics, you know, gay marriage, uh, abortion, the legalizing the recreational use of marijuana. It's none of my business, or so the reasoning goes. And one writer says this, the it doesn't hurt you philosophy now, diminished, now dominates the argument, leaving behind some pressing concerns about social costs. Utah currently has an anti-polygamy law but a federal judge recently ruled against this anti-polygamy law using this reasoning. Why does it matter? What does it matter who marries whom and who lives with whom, is what the judge said. You know, it's none of my business, right? See, and as a foundational rule of life, the phrase, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, is a flawed ethical principle. And there are several problems with it. First is this, how do you measure hurt? Now, some things are pretty obvious. Swinging a baseball bat in a room full of people is going to cause physical harm. But there's more ways. You know, hurt doesn't just include physical harm either. According to this rule, it would be wrong to apply for a job for which there are numerous applications because you're getting the job would hurt somebody else. See, the ethos and action is morally acceptable if it doesn't hurt anyone else has to add all sorts of qualifications and exceptions until it doesn't mean anything anymore. The whole framework collapses under its own weight. The rule is meaningless without a working definition of that word hurt. But see, why is it so popularly believed in our culture? I would suggest that deep behind it is a prevailing cultural worldview that people resonate with. It, with. And the prevailing cultural worldview I would call secular individualism. And I want to unpack those two words separately. First is secularism which is defined as a belief system that rejects religion. It could also be called naturalism. It rejects the supernatural. And see, the Christian faith is countercultural to that. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and he demonstrated that this life is not all there is. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32 says, If there is no resurrection, let's feast and drink, for tomorrow we die. And that is quoting. This saying was even popular back then in the first century. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then might as well adopt a secular worldview. The way I like to phrase it is, if you're going to be on board the Titanic, you might as well go first class, right? See, and secularism says this, because there is no life beyond this one, this life, because it's all there is, this life is meaningful as it is. There's no ultimate significance elsewhere beyond the immediate experience of everyday life. And this means that people have no obvious need for what we call transformative spirituality. But see, within the secular framework, your life does not matter one cosmic iota. And that's the truth within this framework. But see, we want our lives to matter. I'm convinced that we were wired for transcendence. 
for something greater than ourselves. As humans, you know, we desire moments that will take our breath away. We still feel stung by the pain of death. We, and we hunger after mystery, but yet our culture tells us that this, this is all there is. Our culture's rejection of faith and its embrace of the secular comes at a terrible personal cost. If, if you take God out of the equation, all that's left is a quest for individual personal fulfillment. So I wanna talk a little bit about individualism. Because based on secular individualism, because it rejects religion, the ultimate goal of human existence is individual happiness and well-being. Now, I'm a big fan of individual liberty. In, liberty is, is central to the American narrative. But when freedom comes at the expense of a community, then there's a problem. Psychologist Martin Seligman describes what he calls the California self. So in Oregon, you know, we can appreciate that. But he says, the California self has come to dominate American cultural thinking since the second half of the 20th century. And he says, the California self is the ultimate expression of modern individualism in its most inward, narcissistic, self-centered, and self-serving form. To the California self, the primary reason for living is to make right choices and to consume the right things in order to maximize pleasure and minimize, minimize pain and in general get the most from life. And see, with the goal of maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain, then truth is determined by what will give me the most pleasure. So that's how we determine truth in our culture. Truth is determined by how it makes me feel. It is subjectively determined. Usually, I decide what's truth for me, usually by how it makes me feel, whether it makes me feel pleasurable or not. The popular concept is that each person determines their own morality. Each person has the right to define right or wrong for himself or herself. But in response, let me ask you this question. Is there somebody, someplace in the world, that is doing something that you think they shouldn't do? For example, ISIS, for example. Even though ISIS is sincere and that they're doing the right thing, do you feel like they shouldn't be doing what they're doing? Of course there is. This world is filled with all sorts of garbage, human trafficking, you name it. And so, because that is self-evident almost, that means that there is a transcendent moral order above yours. That's what it means. Mark Sayers puts it this way, and this is in your life notes. We exist in an idolatrous society, one in which the ultimate idol is the self. See, the reign of ego, which is narcissism on steroids, has another name. It's, 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 it is narcissism, but historian Christian Lash, in his best-selling book, The Culture of Narcissism, he says that our culture has a pathological preoccupation with self. And it, the problem hasn't gotten any better, it's gotten worse. And I'm pretty sure that selfies and selfie sticks and Instagram haven't helped much with this problem. But see, the selfishness is the essence of sin. And the essence of sin is that middle letter, is the word I. If left unchecked, individualism has a dark side. Across the population, rates of depression have increased tenfold since the 1950s. Young people have been particularly affected. Youth suicide, especially among males, has risen for the past 50 years in all developed nations. And another side to individualism that's dark is the essence of the behind any conflict, either between people or families or between nations, the root of every conflict is this. Somebody somewhere is being selfish. 
Selfishness is the reason why the world is in the condition that it's in. I didn't have to go to college to learn to be selfish. I came by it naturally. And the way I view, view life is, well, if life were a movie because I'm in every scene, I must be the star of the movie of my life. But see, I'm not the only one that thinks that. Everybody thinks that. But the Bible cuts across all this self-absorption and narcissism. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, you do not own yourself. You have been purchased at a great price, so use your body to bring glory to God. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to God now. And this has huge implications regarding the myths in our society about right and wrong. So I want to take a look at a couple of cultural myths about sin. And first one is this, there are no moral absolutes. Philosophically, this is known as moral nihilism. I would suggest that the dominant cultural value today is tolerance, toleration. But toleration or tolerance has changed. It used to mean equality among people. All people are equal, but now it means all behaviors are equal. And because all behaviors are equal, then we have no right to call another behavior sinful. That would be a hater. The only sin in our culture that's, a, that's called a sin is intolerance. In addition, we've watered down and sanitized what would otherwise be sinful terms. Pornography is called adult entertainment. Uh, this one really bugs me. Instead of, ha- instead of adultery, it's called having an affair. Like you're doing nothing more serious than going to carnival instead of blowing up two families. We're not going to call, call it premarital sex. It's called hooking up. And people who don't know God and know, don't know the Bible generally know at least one verse from the Bible, and it's this one, Matthew 7, 1, where Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. Seems like in the context of our culture, this verse is taken to mean we have no right to discern between right and wrong, and that is not what Jesus is talking about. So first of all, my understanding of the word judge means to prejudge. You know, we have to make moral discernment. You cannot live life without making decisions about right and wrong. But this means to prejudge. It's where the word prejudice comes from. The word prejudice literally means to prejudge. That's what's wrong. That's what Jesus is talking about. And another note, as believers, we are actually commanded to judge one another. You know, it's because we're in relationship with each other. And so we are to, we're to encourage each other and we are to judge each other, not with condemnation, but with a motive of restoration, not punishment, but you know, we want to have relationship. When I, when I was parenting my children, not everything they did was okay. I would have to correct them on occasion. And so that's just, that's just part of being in a relationship because we're not, we're, we're not perfect, we're flawed. And so we need that. And it's, you know, as long as we do it in grace and love, it's that, our motive is restoration. But see, what this means is, you know, while we're commanded to, to judge each other, Here's the safety tip, beware of judging motives because that's where we cross the line. That's where it's not okay. Behaviors, we're commanded to judge each other's behaviors in the body of Christ. Let let God take care of those who aren't in the body of Christ. But do not judge each other's motives. That's where we don't have the capacity. We're not God, we cannot x-ray the soul. But you know, for some this can be a favorite indoor sport, judging motives. But again, and I call it a negative interpretation. For example, if I was to get my wife a membership to the gym, you know, my thinking is, 
you know, I like, to, I like to work out, I like to spend time with her, but if I don't explain that to her, what might she think? He thinks I'm fat. Well, the, the truth is, I think she's a fine fox. But see, avoid negative interpretation. Uh, don't go there, judge behaviors, but only God can judge motives. That's his prerogative. Proverbs 14, verse 12 says this, there is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. So moral nihilism, or the view that each individual can decide right or wrong for themselves, might sound good, but in the end, it's the way of death. It is really living an autonomous life, independent from God. Saying, I don't need God to tell me right from wrong. I make those decisions myself. And that really is the original sin in the Garden of Eden. It's what Adam and Eve did. They became a law unto themselves. And the result is separation from God. That's the biblical definition of death. It's a relational term. So secondly, my sin is not so bad. It's common for people in our world today to think that I'm not such a bad person. I may you know, mess up a time or two here, but I've got a good heart. I'm not really such a bad guy. And especially if we compare ourselves to other people, we can be tempted to think, well, I'm not so bad because I can always find somebody who's way worse off, way worse than me. You know, and chances are you might be sitting to somebody who's <laughs> worse than you today. I don't know. But God doesn't grade on a curve. That's the truth. You know, the standard isn't other people. The standard is God. And the most common word in the Bible used to describe God is the word holy. The word holy means sinless perfection when applied to God. God says, be holy for I am holy. Uh, how many of you are perfect? <laughs> yeah. You know, let me ask you, so, in, in, well, let's have, let's have an exercise, a group exercise. Let me ask you this question. How many of you have ever told a lie? If so, raise your hand. Okay, I'm really concerned about people who haven't raised their hand. I want to say, liar, liar, pants on fire. Okay? So, not, you can put your hands down. How many have ever stolen something that didn't belong to you, taken something that didn't belong to you? Raise your hand. A few less hands, but there's still a lot of honest folks here. Uh, now, Jesus, how many of you have ever looked lustfully at another person? Remember, Jesus defined lust as, you know, adultery in, in your heart. So, I'm not, I'm not asking, have you committed adultery? Have you looked lustfully at somebody? And we'll assume that if you're married, you know, you're sitting next to your spouse as when you were 14, you know, but. <laughs> okay, so, if you've ever told a lie, what are you? Somebody help me. You are a? A liar, that's right, that's I'm looking for something more specific than sinner, we're all sinners. You're a liar. If you've ever stolen something, what are you? A thief. And if you've ever looked lustfully at some, someone, you are, according to Jesus, an adulterer, right? You are a lying, thieving adulterer. <laughs> Welcome to Abundant Life, where <laughs> we're here to encourage you in your faith. The Bible is clear. There's nobody righteous, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the reason that we minimize the seriousness of sin is because sin results in death. Again, the biblical definition of death is separation from God. God is love, he wants relationship with us, he created us for that reason, but he's also holy. And sin breaks that relationship with God. That's why it's serious. Well, next is all sin is the same. That's the next cultural myth. 
Implied in this myth is, who are you to judge me? What I'm doing is no worse than what you're doing. All sin is the same. Now, there's, the truth to that is, all sin will separate you from God. That's true. But in terms of consequences, not all sin is created equal. For example, a pastor who commits the sin of gluttony, which in church culture is pretty easy to do, but a pastor who commits the sin of gluttony is not going to get fired for that. I've never heard of that happening. But a pastor who commits the sin of adultery had better get fired for that because the consequences, the violation of trust, is so much more profound. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18 says this, Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Run from sexual sin. Why? Because no other sin so clearly affects the body as this one. Now, growing up in church, I was taught that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God no longer lives in a building. He lives in, in us. We are the habitation of God. So far, so good. But I was also then taught in church that I was growing up that because our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, then smoking is wrong. And for this day and age, I would have to include vaping and hookah as well. But see, the scripture clearly says there's only one sin against the temple, your body. And it's not smoking or even vaping. It is the sin of sexual immorality. That's the only sin that it's a sin against the temple. Why is that? Because this sin affects us in a deep, personal way. There are literally life and death consequences with this kind of a sin. Your body was purchased by the shed blood of Jesus, so flee sexual sin. All other sins, the Bible says, resist or fight, but not this one. Don't try to fight. Run, Forrest, run, is what the Bible says. Flee sexual immorality. And then number four, it's okay to sin. God's grace will cover it. And this one is more expressly Christian than the others. Involved is the idea is, well, since I've already done it, I might as well keep on doing it. We've had sex already, so we might as well keep having sex. Or I've broken sobriety once, it's way easier to break it a second time. I heard one guy say, it's easy to quit smoking. I've done it hundreds of times. See, that's not a new problem. It was just as real when the New Testament was written. The Apostle Paul asks a relevant question in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And see, one note is the Apostle Paul here is talking about a lifestyle of sin, not just a single act or two of failure. He's talking about believers that remain absolutely unchanged from their previous life. To go on sinning, that's in the present continuous tense. It means an action that keeps on happening. When, the, when 1 John says, my children do not sin, it means do not walk in sin. Do not continue in it. Shall we keep on sinning so that grace can show us more and more, so that God can show us more and more of his amazing grace? And this is where the theological twist comes in. Hey, if God's going to forgive me anyway, why should I even stop? Why not go on sinning so that his grace may abound? God loves to show his grace. Therefore, if we go on sinning, he'll have all the more opportunity. What a chance for God to show his grace. And Paul reacts to this by saying, by no means. Literally in the Greek it is, may it never be. 
The King James Version sounds horrified. God forbid. Another translation says, what a ghastly thought. The New English Bible puts it very simply, no, no. In other words, this is a no-no in the Christian experience. You cannot go on sinning and experience forgiveness and grace. It can't be done. Now, why? In his inescapable logic, Paul answers in just four little words. We died to sin. And the rest of Romans chapter 6 is actually an explanation of what that means. And one thing it doesn't mean is that I no longer have any sin. You know, sin is dead in me. I no longer have any sin. I I don't commit sin anymore. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean we're perfect, but it does mean that Jesus, by virtue of his sinless, sinless life and his atonement on the cross to pay the price for sin, when we identify with Jesus, then we are a new person. We have a new identity and a new nature. We have a new heart. Everything's changed. And so we have a fundamental different identity now. That's what it means. Sin is no longer my identity. I'm not defined by that any longer. My identity is now Jesus. John 14, verse 23 says, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. That's Jesus talking. The text is very clear. If you love Jesus, you'll obey him. You no longer do what you want to do. You do what he wants to do. See, it really is a lordship issue. Who is the Lord of your life? Who's the maximum authority? Is it self or is it Jesus? So what does the Bible teach about sin? It's not everything the Bible teaches about sin, but for the topic at hand, this will cover it. First of all, sin hurts my relationship with God. All sin is ultimately an issue between you and God. In the Old Testament, King David slept with Bathsheba, who was not his wife. She got pregnant, and so David ended up killing her husband to cover up his sin. He committed, those are pretty big ones, sins of adultery and murder both. This is the king of Israel, most famous man in the nation. Well, the prophet Nathan confronts David about what he's done, and to his credit, David repents. You know, how can he do these massively bad things? And he's, he's still called a man after God's own heart. It's because he's quick to repent. And then he wrote Psalm 51. And he said, create in me a clean heart. But notice what he says in verse 4 of Psalm 51. It was against you, only you, that I sinned. For I have done what you say is wrong right before your eyes. Now, technically speaking, he'd actually sinned against Bathsheba and especially against her husband who he had murdered. But David is so aware of his broken relationship with God, he says, it's against you and only you that I've really sinned. Well, secondly, not only does sin hurt our relationship with God, it hurts me. See, the rationale of it doesn't matter what you do as long as you don't hurt anyone forgets about a not-so-innocent victim of sin, which is us, you. Jesus made it clear that sin is not just about behavior. He raised the bar when he said in Matthew 5, verse 27, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. See, thoughts lead to actions. Murder begins with hate. Adultery begins with lust. Sin is not just about behavior. Jesus raises the bar to include our thoughts. See, it's not temptation that's wrong. It's when we decide, yes, that's what we want. That's where we cross the line. And so those kind of thoughts are what lead then to behaviors. But what does it hurt to look at a woman with lust? What's the harm in that? Well, 
First of all, it hurts the marriage if you're married. Uh, if recent serve, you know, research indicates that the average wife feels that if her husband is looking at porn, that's the equivalent of adultery is what it feels like to her. So it's hurting the marriage, it's not helping the marriage. In addition, it is objectifying woman, women in general and that woman in specific. But Jesus doesn't even mention those victims of lust. Primarily, he says, it hurts the one who is lusting. He says, it would be better for you to pluck out your eye and throw it in the dump than continue in that behavior. That's how seriously he takes it. Continuing to live in sin is to let sin define your identity. It's not who you are. You have a new heart and a new nature. C.S. Lewis put it this way, if conversion to Christianity makes no improvement in a person's outward actions, if he continues to be just as snobbish or spiteful or envious or ambitious as he was before, then I think we must suspect that his conversion was largely imaginary. Or like the guy who said, I don't mind if a person is born again, but does he have to come back as himself? You know, that's a problem. See, it's not Satan who defeats us. I mean, who is Satan that he can stand up to the living God? It's not Satan who defeats us. It is our openness to him. And then thirdly, sin hurts others. And that's the tragedy of sin because innocent people are almost invariably affected. Emil Durkheim is the father of modern sociology. And he noted that here in the West, we take individualism and freedom to be foundational to the good life. But he also noted the danger when individuals are isolated from their communities. And in places where individualism is the supreme value, places that look a lot like 21st century America, individuals don't actually flourish in those environments, but suicide does. See, without the values of a shared community, society slips into a state that Durkheim called normlessness. Boy, if that's a description of our cult, if that's not a description, what is? normlessness. This freedom doesn't lead to happiness, but instead leads to depression and social decay. See, the reason why sin hurts other people is unless you live on a desert island by yourself, you live in community. You exist in community. When you get married, you don't just marry a person. You marry into a whole family. Have you figured that, that out maybe? <laughs> First Corinthians 12, 26 talks about the interrelationship of the body of Christ. Where it says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. After I had surgery to repair my shoulder, my body felt so bad about it, it stayed up all night to keep a company. <laughs> you know, that's the way we're supposed to be in the body of Christ. We're supposed to have that kind of care and concern for each other. When one of our own struggles with sin, we, we, we confront and we deal, we love that person through it. When others celebrate and rejoice and experience, we, we celebrate victory as well. And then fourthly, God's grace overcomes sin, and that's good news. See, no matter what you've done, no matter what you might be trapped in, or how long you've been there, listen to God's promise. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Any temptation you face will be nothing new, but God is faithful, and he'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can handle. But he always provides a way of escape so that you will be able to endure and keep moving forward. In that verse are three promises. And the first one is this. Your temptation is nothing new. In other words, it's common to everybody. You're not the only one that struggles. That can be discouraging, but that's not true. 
Now, first of all, sometimes I can beat myself up because I'm like, oh, I can't believe I'm struggling with this temptation. Being tempted means you're not a loser. It means you're alive. It means welcome to the human race. As long as you're going to fog up a mirror, you're going to struggle with temptation. Even Jesus was tempted. That's not the problem. So there's nothing, nothing wrong with being tempted. Being tempted is part of being human. But the next promise is this. You won't be tempted beyond your ability to handle it. In other words, God's not going to set you up for failure and put you in impossible situations. He is for you. He has a vested interest in your welfare. And then the third promise is he'll give you a way out. And Jesus is the way out. He is the truth that sets you free. He is the life that endures forever. With Jesus, you can step out into his grace and out of your bondage so that you will be able to endure it and keep moving forward. See, it's not about being perfect. It's about trajectory. Are you growing? Are you growing closer to Jesus? Since becoming a Christ follower, I've discovered that I still sin. Oh, no. Oh, yes. <laughs> All the time. But that doesn't mean I give up and say, well, why even bother to try if I'm not going to succeed 100% of the time? Who has that kind of reasoning in any kind of endeavor? You know, the point is not perfection. The point is, are you still growing to be like Jesus? Sin has consequences. It costs us. But the good news is that Jesus is bigger than our sin. And God is faithful. When our culture says, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you don't hurt anybody, recognize that is not God speaking. That's culture. Are you going to be a cultural person or a biblical person? 1 John 1.9 says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See, sin is the greatest enemy to our intimacy with God. But Jesus is the friend of sinners. That's good news because we're all sinners. We all need his grace. And do you realize that Jesus never condemns sinners? He condemned hypocrites. And the difference is this. Because when confronted with sin, their own personal sin, a hypocrite excuses it, rationalizes, justifies it, and moves on unchanged. But a sinner is one who confronted, then acknowledges that, confesses it, receives grace and forgiveness. And the good news is that sinner becomes a saint. Saint means holy one. It's not because we're holy, because God, that's the way God looks at us now. We, have, we are a new person. We're not the same person. We're not defined by our sin. We're defined by Jesus. Sin grows best in the dark, and when you keep it quiet, that's when it grows best of all. But when you confess it, that's when you experience freedom and deliverance. In other words, confession is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of growth and of strength. So what I'm going to do is, for those of you who have made Jesus Lord, I'm sure there are areas of all of our lives that we have not surrendered to God, the Lordship of Jesus. And maybe one of the most dangerous prayers you can pray is, God, Holy Spirit, show me the condition of my heart. Because that's his job. And when God does that, I'm going to give you a chance to confess that and come clean with God and experience his deliverance and his freedom. So I'm going to ask that you bear, close your eyes and bow your head and just ask God that question. God, show me my heart. And whatever the Spirit brings to your mind, we just ask God. Confess that and ask him for forgiveness. Would you do that as we reflect for just a moment or two?
There's another category of person here, that one who has not made Jesus Christ the Lord of their life. And I want to give you a chance to do that right now. It's not about being perfect. It's about letting Jesus cover you in his grace and his love, becoming a new person. And if you'd like to make Jesus the Lord, I'd ask that you pray along with me. And if you have made Jesus Lord, would you also pray out loud? Would you join me in prayer? God, I admit that I'm a sinner and I need your grace. I confess Jesus is Lord. Thank you for forgiving me and giving me new life. In Jesus' name, amen.